Well, Thanksgiving is now behind us, and if we've not already done so, now is the time to unpack Christmas decorations. You know, getting ready for Christmas is obviously something we do every year, and the older we get, the quicker the calendar returns to December. <laughs> you know, some love decorating and shopping and wrapping packages. Others, not so much. But something we all love is revisiting what took place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Familiarity with the story of Christ coming to earth, being laid in a manger and being visited by shepherds and magi is one we love to hear and retell. It and the resurrection we celebrate every spring assure us that God loves us and has made possible our eternal life. The Gospels tell us the story. And today we begin a study in the Gospel of John. So with our minds drifting back to Bethlehem, we begin. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wait a minute. That's not what we expect. But that's the way John begins his gospel. No nativity like the others, no story about Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, just the statement, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But what a statement that is. God became flesh and we beheld his glory. Now, obviously, we weren't there when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, but John was. He actually did behold the glory of the Son of God. He was given a glimpse of Jesus' supernatural glory on the mountaintop, but also witnessed his glory on a daily basis for three years, walking with Jesus in the flesh. His record of it, however, differs significantly from the other records that have been preserved for us. John was the last living apostle, and he wrote his gospel some 20 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote theirs. The other three are very similar and may have actually used a common written source or each other in composing their Gospels. John's Gospel stands alone. It almost seems as if he's writing to fill in some gaps in the record. While others focus on Jesus' Galilean ministry, John focuses on his Judean ministry. They all tell of his miracles, but John seems to focus more on the significance of the miracles than the miracles themselves. Rather than record Jesus' parables, John records his lengthy discourses. And John's gospel 
seems to have been written more to equip the church to evangelize than to evangelize in and of itself. The theme of his gospel, however, is believe. The word believe appears 98 times in John's gospel, more than any other key word. We find it in the first chapter, where it is said that the ministry of John the Baptist was to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. And John concludes the main body of his gospel by actually stating that his purpose in writing was that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life through his name. John's purpose in writing is very clear. The introduction to his gospel, however, is a little less clear. In fact, it seems a bit convoluted and even enigmatic. The first verses of John are known as the prologue. And if understood, it really does set the stage for what's to follow. We're not going to dissect it and examine every phrase of the prologue in detail because I think we'll understand it better if we take it as a whole and simply focus on the fact that in these verses, Jesus is referred to as the Word. And as such... He is presented in his role as creator, as the light, and as the embodiment of grace. Let's take a look at this word this morning. John chapter 1, the first three verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Referring to Jesus as the word seems a bit strange to us. But to the Jews and the Greeks of the first century, it did make perfect sense. They both had an understanding of the word, or as it is in Greek, logos. And John is using that word, that term, to introduce them to Jesus. Logos, to the Greek, was reason and logic, the mind behind the universe. They realized something had to be there, and they called it logos. And the Jews, of course, saw the creative power of God in his word. In Psalm 33, 6, we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all the hosts. In verse 9, we read, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So to both the Jew and the Greek, the word was something divine something behind all of life and responsible for it. John simply identifies the word. He begins by noting in the beginning 
was the Word. The Word existed even before the beginning. It was there at the beginning. It existed before there was anything else or anything at all. And the Word was with God. The Word was with God, separate from God, but with God. But the word wasn't another God. John doesn't say the word was a God. He says the word was God, the very essence of God. So both Jews and Greeks could think of God as the word, as reason and power. But John went a step further. In the next verse, he referred to the Logos as he, he was in the beginning with God. The word was more than an attribute of God. It was a he. The word was a person, the second person of God. Now, this isn't too hard for us to grasp. We've been thinking about the Trinity, the triune nature of God, for centuries. We don't fully understand it, but it's not a new concept to us. Paul's readers in the first century, however, this was to them something new, a second person of God. Not a separate God, but a second person. A second aspect of God's nature that was always a part of God. John then goes on to say this second person of God was in fact the creator. Now that's a bit surprising. Even we think of the first person of God, God the Father, as creator. But here John says all things came into being by this personified word of God. Again, that surprises us, but it shouldn't. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, God After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And in Colossians 1.16, Paul, speaking of God's beloved Son, writes, For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. John is simply here saying the same thing. This word of God, this expression of God's mind and power is personified in his son. And this son of God is actually the creator, our creator. Now, Jesus didn't come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem. He was with God from the very beginning. He was, in fact, the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Not only that, he is light. Let's read on. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word is not only the creator, the source of life, but also the source of light, the light of men. He is the one who can illuminate man, enable him to see who he is and why he is, who can give purpose and meaning and understanding to life. He is the source of man's intellectual and spiritual perception. And apart from him, nothing really makes sense. But there's a problem. Man dwells in darkness. And this darkness in which man dwells makes it difficult to comprehend the light, to lay hold of it. So God sent a man, John the Baptist, into the world to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. Now, John wasn't the light. He was merely a prophetic witness to the light, sent to prepare men to receive the light. Sadly, the vast majority did not receive him. They did not receive the one who is the light. Jesus came willing to enlighten every man. He came to the world, the world he had made, but the world didn't recognize him as creator. Some didn't even want to recognize there was a creator. To do so would acknowledge accountability to the one who created them. Some couldn't see a creator. Others defiantly refused to see one. Today, we call those who have doubts that keep them from belief as agnostics, and those who refuse to see it as atheists. I'm currently reading Eric Metaxas' latest book, Is Atheism Dead? In it, he shows how that in light of recent discoveries in science and archaeology, it's harder to be an atheist today than it has ever been. Good book. I recommend it. But in the book, after addressing briefly agnosticism and noting that agnosticism can be perfectly logical, he writes... Not everyone has a clear revelation of God and truth sufficient to end their doubts. And so we return to the 
unhelpful raging against the light itself that we see in Hitchens and his friends. Now, the friends he's talking about are Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris, who, along with Christopher Hitchens, referred to themselves as the four horsemen of the new atheism. He continues, It is simply not logical that any of them could believe what they purport to believe, because to believe it and live out that belief would be a logical absurdity and an impossibility, a snake swallowing its own tail. Any of us who truly wishes to believe that there is no God cannot fully do so. To pretend that we emerged from nothing and go towards nothing is untenable. People who know God exists know that when he created us in his image, he made us long for meaning. And there can be no escaping that however we wish to try. We may twist away from the truth, but there is a gyroscope in every atom of our being that works against such twisting, that forces us to be righted and to yearn for light and meaning and truth and goodness. And with irony magnificently lost on them, these atheists betray the very fact in the writing of their books and their other advocacy for their position Because, as we have said, if there is no God and life is meaningless, why say anything at all? Why bother? Why make the effort to convince anyone of anything if those to whom you are talking are no more than bugs or stones or tumbleweeds? (laughs) John said the word came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But some did. Some did receive a clear revelation of God and truth sufficient to end their doubts. And to those who did were given the right to become children of God, not just the creation of God, but children of God. He gave to them the privilege of being born again into God's own family. And he made this possible by coming as the embodiment of grace, as an undeserved gift. Verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh, And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, 
he has explained him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that no doubt shocked the philosophers of the day who who held that flesh was evil. But John isn't here dealing with the fallen nature of humanity. He's simply affirming the incarnation, the fact that God became a man, that the word dwelt, tabernacled, pitched his tent among us for a time. Why? To enable us to see the glory of God. And John says, we beheld it. But if God wanted to display his glory, why didn't he come to earth as he did in Ezekiel's vision or John's later revelation of a glorious God with crowns and stars and swords and eyes of fire? Surely that is a glorious picture of Almighty God. Yet, God's glory is best demonstrated through his grace. And Jesus came to earth full of grace and truth. He came as a gift that we needed, but certainly didn't deserve. What could better express the true glory of our God than what Paul had to say to us In Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the fullness of God's glory. And from it we have received grace upon grace. Through his coming to earth, we have become recipients of God's never-ending grace, grace upon grace, blessing after blessing. John reminds us that Moses was a great man and that the law came through him. Through him also came the priestly sacrificial system that dramatically pictured the need for a price to be paid for sin. Through him, we saw something of God's grace and truth. But the fullness of grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He is the only adequate explanation of God and of his love for us. Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He pictures the Father in the only way we can understand as a man because he is God in the flesh. What John has to say may at first glimpse 
seem a bit abstract. But we can get a really good look at God only if we'll look at Jesus. And John, in his gospel, paints beautiful portraits of Jesus. We saw a portrait last week in Matt's speed painting. Now we're going to take our time and spend a year and a half looking at portraits painted with words. John begins by painting a picture of the Word of God. And in doing so, invites us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's do that now.